Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. And good Thursday morning. I'm Paul filling in again for Carmen on, okay, Mornings Without Carmen here on Faith Radio. Carmen will be back on Monday. She's still enjoying time with family and uh, grandkids, especially down in Orlando. Hey, question for you. When you're watching, say, a football game or a baseball game or basket, whatever, and you don't have a, you don't have a horse in the race, there's not your team playing, who do you root for when you're watching the game? Okay, most of us default to the underdog. You know, we like the underdog. You know what? God does too. It's it's just been his way. Think about this. Think about his choice of Abraham to make a great make into a great nation through whom he'd reveal his law and then his savior would come. But why Abraham? He was old. He had no children. And think about this. He was a foreigner, you know, from the area that we know as the Holy Land of Israel. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. Meanwhile, in the land of the Holy Land, back at the same time, there was a guy by the name of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who was also a priest to the Most High. He was a worshiper of God. Why was he not chosen? Don't know the answer to that, but that always intrigued me. Okay, let's go on further. Why was Jacob chosen over his more rugged, stronger brother Esau? Why did God choose Moses? This Okay, yeah, he was a guy who was a Hebrew. He should have been killed, but was raised to power in the country for a while of some level, only to be cast out because of a murder. And then what did he become? He was a, he was a shepherd for 40 years on the backside of the desert. And then yet God chose him to lead the people out of, it, out of Egypt. He chose David, this seemingly nothing of a shepherd, to become king. You look at some of the prophets of the Old Testament. One that jumps out at me is Amos. Amos was sent to uh, prophesy to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel during the divided kingdom era. He wasn't a theologian by training. He was a farmer, just a lowly farmer, and yet God sent him. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. When God chose a virgin to become the mother of Messiah, did he go to a woman who lived in Jerusalem? No. He went to this little regarded city of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. There were sayings about that town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Obviously, yes, even though people didn't think so. Think about Jesus' apostles. A few rough fishermen, a zealot, tax collector. Seriously, what a motley bunch. Oh, wait a minute. There was one guy who had some pedigree. Had some, uh, he had a pretty good resume. Uh, Judas Iscariot. Mm. Okay. Really, this is just an abbreviated list. Then there's our Growing Your Faith verse from, and I have to apologize. This was our Growing Your Faith verse from yesterday. I flipped him around by accident. But it's one of those, another wonderful signs of the promise of the coming of Messiah. Micah 5, 2, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, if you know Bethlehem, you know that's where King David that was his hometown, you know, or that, that shepherd. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, here he was, the shepherd in the town of Bethlehem, just minding himself in the fields. And yet God, through a various means, brought him to be the king of Israel. So, yes, little town of Bethlehem. And I'm sure the people of Bethlehem are thinking, yep, yeah, we had our man, our claim to fame, David. We did our part for the people, you know, but we're just this little know-nothing town. Yeah. Probably wouldn't, lightning wouldn't strike twice in the same place, would it? I mean, think about it. When Jesus was born and the Magi came to Judea to look for the Christ child, where did they stop? Jerusalem. <laughs> Who'd have thought of Bethlehem? Right. Mind you, their arrival did cause no shortage of concern. After all, King Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea. He also did not like those who might threaten his rule, even if it was just a little baby. And mind you, think about this. Herod was not Jewish. He was an Edomite by nationality and didn't know much about the Messianic promise. So what did he do when these Vagi came? He called the religious leaders and asked them where Messiah was to be born. And guess what? They knew the answer. They knew Micah. They knew the prophet Micah's promise in five two, Micah 5.2 that it would be in Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's account of this story, they quote Micah. Now comes the sad thing. Although the Magi left Jerusalem and took that five and a half mile, mile trek down to Bethlehem, there's no report of anybody else doing that apart from the soldiers later on who massacred the children, the boys under the age of two in that, uh, in that city. Were the religious leaders afraid of Herod's wrath if they went, maybe. Or maybe they were just okay with knowing the answer. Hey, we got the answer right. We did our job. Or did they too have little respect for little Bethlehem? And did they not see the full message of the promise that he who would be born would be one whose origins were of old from ancient times, which ties into another messianic promise from the, from the prophet Daniel, the Messiah, who would be the ancient of days. Then we're not talking just any person. We're talking God in the flesh. You know, going for the little guy, favoring the humble, the lowly, the outcast. God, God does that. That's what he usually does. And then he turns around and does great things through them. Well, again, this is Mornings with uh, Carmen. I'm Paul filling in this week. And Later this hour, we're going to reflect on the humility of Jesus and why it's not just good news for us, but it's also a call for us as well. Now, a couple of days ago, down in Des Moines, Iowa, a nativity display went on, well, went on display at the Iowa State Capitol. And there was a ceremony around it. The, the display was donated by the Thomas More Society, a group that helps to foster religious liberty. The event was well attended, partly due to another display at the Iowa State Capitol, a display put up by the Satanic Temple of Des Moines. And this is something that has well-meaning Christians divided. And I want to talk to Mark Caleb Smith, one of our regular guests here on Faith Radio. He'll be joining us in just a few moments. Again, this is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul. And this is Faith Radio. 
Well, again, this is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul. Thank you for listening today as Carmen takes some vacation time. And all right, I love bringing on Mark Caleb Smith because, okay, partly because I love the big band music we usually play around you. You and I have this affinity for big band music, which I love, Mark. So, but uh, I also want to talk, and, and you as a, uh, the Dean of Arts and uh, uh, School of Arts and Humanities at Cedarville, and you're a blogger and a political scientist blogger at Bereans at the Gate, uh, dot com. And, okay, here we go again, the Christmas Wars. Iowa seems to be the hotbed this year of the Christmas Wars. Uh, the city of Toledo, which is a little town uh, about 70 miles or so from Des Moines, there's a uh, fire station that, that they, they've had a nativity display on their on their property for years, but they got a letter from the group Freedom from Religion Foundation ordering, asking for it, well, demanding its removal. And at this point, their city lawyers are saying we better do that. Meanwhile, at the state capitol, you have not only the nativity display on the capitol we talked about, but there's various other displays, including some from various aether groups and that satanic temple, which has caused a lot of ruckus and uh, some Christians, there, there's been some news articles I'm reading, uh, various Christians are disagreeing on how to handle this. What are your thoughts? Uh, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of motivations that go into people discussing this. Let me start there. I mean, yeah. uh, some people want to discuss this for attention because yeah. it's a hot button issue uh, that you can generate social media traffic and potentially generate controversy and uh, continue to get, uh, you know, clicks and everything else that you might want for your business model. And so in that sense, this story doesn't surprise me that it became kind of a, of a national news story, at least for, for a few moments. Um, but I can also understand why people are legitimately concerned. I mean, I, I this is an unusual display in a capital, especially the satanic display, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see why people might view this as kind of symbolic of the problems that we're running into in America. Um, but I, you know, one of the state legislators, I think, made a really interesting comment about it. And he said, uh, at the end of the day, this display, the satanic display has no power. You yeah. know, it's an inanimate object. It doesn't have any necessary power connected to it. And by talking about it, we're just investing more um, energy into it that probably doesn't deserve all that much more energy or all that much more discussion. And so, you know, I'm divided on the extent to which we should discuss it. The question of rights and should it be there, you know, that's a that's a more complicated question. Um, and certainly if you want to get into it, we can jump into that with both feet as well. Well, yeah, I think we should because one of the people who I saw is a state representative, John Dunwell, and he's an evangelical pastor. At least right. uh, he was. Before. I, I don't know if he still is or he's doing that while being a state representative. Um, and... While he agrees what's there is evil, he doesn't – he goes on to say, I don't want the state evaluating or making determinations about religions. And so he's used he, – for him, it's this is a First, first Amendment issue. Yep. And I, I think that's typically where I would land as well. I mean I, I think that we're better off if the government's not making these kind of value judgments over a particular display – um, if we're going to have, you know, in this particular situation, you can file an application for the display. Um, it's up for two weeks from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And the state doesn't do any discrimination based on the religion or the ideology behind the display. As long as it isn't obscene or something like that, then it's going to go, it's going to be put into place. 
And I think I'm okay with that. You know, I understand it might create some uncomfortable situations for people and they may prefer the government to be a little more heavy handed and say, you know, um, this doesn't reflect our values and therefore we don't think it should be up. But, you know, as you know, if you give the government that kind of authority and say, we want you to make that value judgment, then you really just get into a a majoritarian approach to these questions. What is the majority's values? And that's really all that we care about. Um, and I would argue that our our Constitution, at least to some extent, we could argue about how much of an extent, but to some extent is there to protect minority rights, is there to protect minority religious rights, um, because we can't always guarantee that we're going to be in a majority position, even as believers. And so I would prefer the government to give some protection to those religious minorities, um, even when we're talking about a so-called religious display like this, which is obviously irreligious and obviously <laughs> trolling to some extent as well. That's the thing. Uh, the person who put – well, the, the satanic temple and the pe- person who leads it, he says, well, I actually don't believe there is a Satan. He, he's he's an atheist. Right. That's and right. he he's – the main reason he wants to do that, like you mentioned earlier, is to just kind of poke people in the eye. Yeah. So I think I- – I mean, to me, the question, you know, we both read a piece by Andrew Walker at World News Group who made an argument about this piece, and he was arguing it should not be put up for various reasons. And generally, I disagree with his argument, but he did ask one interesting question. Maybe the government should ask if this belief is sincerely held. Hmm. You know, is this display a sincere display based on legitimate belief? Yeah, I think I could go along with that. You know, we want to make sure that this isn't just a joke. We're not just trying to poke people. We're actually trying to reflect what we believe, and government will respect that. I think that's probably a legitimate question. Yeah. Of course, that would be hard to determine in some cases, but – In yeah, some cases, it would. But this one cases. where he fully admits, I don't believe in yeah. Satan, but th- th- that's right. then, then, you're, then, then you're just doing it to troll. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah. I, I can see government stepping in at that point. But uh-huh. you know, I think just probably invest way too much um, – Way too much authority and power in these kinds of displays on both sides. You know, we think a nativity display display is going to, you know, sort of charm the country into a, into positive approaches toward Christianity. We think this kind of display is going to have a negative effect. At the end of the day, they're just displays. And I'm mm-hmm. not sure they really affect people all that much. And then this gets back to, hey, we as Christians, we need to live it. We need to live. Exactly we, need right. to, we need to be the living display of uh, God's love and grace. And of course, I don't mind. I've always wanted to have a, a nativity display on my front yard, but um, my town home doesn't allow that. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Well, you need to change that homeowners association. <laughs> run, run for office. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it has to do with the amount of space we have in the front yard. Uh, there really is hardly any room. Anyway, we're talking with Mark Caleb Smith, and as we continue. There was a recent survey out uh, that was done, and there seems to be a rise, especially as we're heading into 2024, concerns about political violence here in the U.S. Not that we haven't had some already. There has been. But there's concerns about more. And we want to look at that and how can we as Christians, again, be the peacemakers as we're called to be. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul. And... This is Faith Radio. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. I mean, seriously, if all we had was nothing more than feelings, we would just be lost in a sea of mush. Hello, friend. Uh, I'm sure you have noticed by now that feelings are a terrible barometer of the truth. Our feelings are affected by the weather, world events, what we ate last night, whether or not someone we like or love texted or tagged us in a social post. How badly someone else sings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're feeling lonely right now, I want you to ask yourself, am I really ever truly alone? Of course not. 
As a follower of Christ, Jesus promises to be with you always. He's literally with you right now in the thick of it, in the midst of whatever circumstances you're dealing with in your life. So I want to be a source of hope and encouragement to you today. If you are struggling to make it, even just to the next moment, if you're feeling lonely, text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. Okay, we're just talking about nativity displays, but okay, why the nativity? Why the birth of Jesus? If you go to MyFaithRadio.com, this is something you and your family can watch together, something you can invite other people to watch. It's for free. Why the Nativity? It's a great video by Dr. David Jeremiah, who you hear weekdays here on, on Faith Radio and weekends as well. He's on Sunday mornings, too, uh, to, to, uh, to watch it. Yeah, you have the link. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com. Let's continue our conversation with Mark Caleb Smith. Uh, He is a blogger, a political scientist at Bereans at the Gate, plus uh, also part of Cedarville University, the Dean of Arts and Humanities. And, of course, you're winding down your school year. And as we wind down the year, interesting survey that was taken where a polling firm found that 83% of participants were concerned about political violence. Read us in on this. Yeah, it's it's a big number. I mean, anytime you give a poll in the United States today and you get 83% of people generally in agreement on something, it's something to pay attention to. And to say that they're concerned about political violence in America is just unusual uh, to see this kind of a number. Um, <clears throat> there, it, it, This was true across both parties. Both Republicans and Democrats were overwhelmingly concerned. According to the polling, 86% of Democrats were concerned and 80% of Republicans. And so uh, widespread concern. Interesting, though, when you dig into the poll a little bit, um, they're concerned about violence on the other side. (laughs) Okay. So Democrats are concerned about Republican violence. Republicans are concerned about Democratic violence, um, which, of course, just goes to show where we are as a as a country right now in terms of our politics. That polarization kicks in to a great extent. So it really Um, kind of is a perception issue. As opposed to a re- – I don't want to say it's just perception, but perception yeah. plays really big into this. It, I think perception is a big part of it for sure. You know, Polarization has induced us to the point where um, we look at the other party often in very different moral terms and sometimes at the most extreme end almost as less than human or deserving fewer rights, for example. And so, yeah, polarization uh, it has a, ne- a large set of negative effects, and this is one of them. But I do, I mean, as a political scientist, as someone who studies these sorts of things and who swims in these waters for a living, uh, I'm a little more concerned about political violence this year than normal. I mean, I'm not convinced we're on the edge of a revolution or something, but I do think there's sort of a fever pitch in both parties. Uh, the stakes continue to get amped up in the rhetoric and you know the, the loose talk of things like civil war. It just we're you know it's just a little bit more prevalent than what I've seen historically, and so I'm a little more concerned as well. And I think if the election is bumpy, and if we get into complicated discussions of who wins and who loses, yeah, I'm a little more concerned than I have been historically. So I think we're wise to be on guard. I think we're wise to approach this, hopefully, as you said, as peacemakers, um, as Christians, and not as sort of just rank partisans. Um, and I think we can, we'll certainly get through it, but I'm a little concerned as well. Mm. Well, that kind of leads us into the discussion I want to have next, and that's here we are. As you're winding down your semester, we're winding down another year, and 
As you look back at uh, 2023 with your political scientist glasses on, what, your thoughts, your thoughts of is there a common thread that you're seeing that we as Christians need to be mindful of, especially as we head into 2024? So I, I did an awful lot of reading and studying this year um, on the question of identity. Mm. And who are we and how do we perceive ourselves as individuals? And there's a long, complicated uh, scholarship that goes into this. Um, but the basic question is, is w- how do you answer the question of who am I? Mm. I think one of the things that we're seeing over the past year, and one of the things I would say looking forward to the next year as well, is I think we're going through a, a struggle over identity as believers. You know, what are we first? I think first we are believers. You know, we are ambassadors of the Son of God. That's who we are as we function in society. Um, But I think there's a struggle there for us to see ourselves maybe as partisans first, or maybe as Americans first, or maybe as something, maybe our race or our gender first. Um, And those are those are the kinds of identities I think that get us into conflict. And so when you look through a lot of stories over the last year and you look through our politics, I think identity is kind of winding its way through all of this. And I think we have to come to a reckoning as believers um, as to who we belong to and what that means for the rest of our lives. You know, if you want to get a little bit more um, concrete, I think the Trump indictments were the biggest legal or the biggest political story from last year. We'll see what kind of effect they have going into the next year. But the fact that a former president was indicted in a range of cases, 90 plus uh, counts, indictments total uh, is a is a, a significant story and one that's going to be uh, historical for a whole host of reasons. But as a little lighter note, I will say one of the things that I I found a little bit of uh, joy in, if you want to call it that, okay. is effect of Taylor Swift. <laughs> now, I'm okay. I am not. I want to be clear. I don't really. I'm, I would not call myself a Swifty. I don't literally listen to a lot of Taylor Swift music, but I have four daughters. Uh, and my daughters are pretty heavily into Taylor Swift for the most part. Um, some did of them they celebrate her birthday yesterday? <laughs> they did not. No, they were busy. <laughs> they did not. So, but I think it's interesting that someone who I would say relatively wholesome and who, um, you know, generally I think is a positive role model for the most part. I think we could all argue about mm-hmm. some of that. Yeah, that could um, be the argued, cultural, yeah. the cultural impact she's had as one person touring across the country. Uh, is remarkable. And in our society, we haven't really seen a lot of that in quite a while. Um, The fact that people were able to come together, able to celebrate, able to have this sort of cultural moment, I wasn't sure was really possible in America anymore, given how fragmented our culture is. And so it was interesting to watch it from a sort of a sociological, political perspective, this sort of rallying around her in a way as a symbol that I just wasn't sure existed in America anymore. So it was interesting to watch. Okay. By the way, additional props to Taylor. I'm not a Taylor Swift fan by any stretch, but props to her. She grew up in uh, northern Tennessee, uh, north-central Tennessee, and they were hit by those storms uh, this past weekend. And she donated a million dollars to some local causes there to help out those in need. So props to Taylor on that and belated happy birthday as she turned 34. Okay. (laughs) One more, Mark Caleb uh, Smith, yeah. as you are the political scientist here. Not so much what you expect. I know we all are expecting various things as we head into 2024. What are you hoping for from, especially from God's people, 
as we head into a pro- likely contentious election year? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm hopeful that we will begin to um, live up to the words of the New Testament as we are continually exhorted um, to be salt and light, properly speaking, in a culture that is in need of both of those things. And uh, I think when we look at our politics and we look at our society, um, there are just some basic Christian ingredients that we can add that I think would have a significantly positive effect. And so think of something as simple as um, loving your enemy. However you define your enemy, we could argue about that, but however you define what that word means, love that person. Um, If Christians would simply live up to some of these standards of loving your enemy or respecting those who are in authority, um, praying for those who are in authority, uh, I think we would, we would have a positive significant effect. And I, I, you know, I think that we're uh, hopefully we're being called to those, uh, to those higher political virtues, uh, just as we're being called to them by the apostle Paul, by Peter, by Christ and everyone else throughout the new Testament. And so, you know, I hope that we will continue to move in that direction. And as our social fabric gets kind of pulled in many different directions, that we'll be the ones kind of there trying to keep it together and mend it as much as we can. Boy, uh, you use the, use the term political virtues when you're talking about praying for leaders and loving your enemy. And oftentimes we don't think of them that way. No, but I, th- I think you know, when, you, when you look at Christ and his call for how we should live in a, live in a fallen, dark world, um, these are pretty clear things. And I think they're, uh, they're pretty clear and concretely taught. Um, but we just really don't want to confront them because sometimes they make us uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. given our other commitments. And I think this is what it means to truly uh, live out Christ's call in a political sense. I think you're right. Well, Mark, uh, this is our final conversation of 2023, and we do look forward to continuing the conversations, Carmen and you, in 2024. Uh, your, anything big going on for Christmas, a uh, favorite tradition that your family has? Uh, hopefully lots of sleeping, honestly, <laughs> lots of celebrating. We don't really plan on doing any traveling. And for, you know, I have five children, and we have relatives scattered throughout different parts of the country, and to have no traveling is actually a really good blessing for us. And so we will uh, we will hunker down and enjoy one another's company. Um, I have two. I have three kids who are in college right now, mm. um, and so they will all be will all be under one roof, and we will celebrate, and it will be a, it'll be a good time. So I'm oh. looking forward to it. Yeah, blessings on your Christmas celebration, and blessings in the new year. Thanks a lot, Mark. Yep. Thank you. Thank you to you and Carmen and to all your listeners. Yeah. Again, Mark Caleb Smith, Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Cedarville University, plus he blogs occasionally at Bereans at the Gate. I'm Paul. This is Mornings with Carmen. And as I mentioned earlier, we love underdogs, the one who comes from humble beginnings and accomplishes great things. But what about someone who uses his place of privilege or even forsakes his place of privilege for the good of someone else or others? It's part of the Christmas story that we don't, I don't think we meditate on enough. And maybe part of that is because by doing so and seeing it, it calls us to something. It's something hard, but truly it is something beautiful. Coming up in a few moments, I'll be talking with Dennis Edwards. He is, uh, he's the author of a book called Humility Illuminated, the path Uh, the biblical path back to Christian character. I'm Paul, filling in on Carmen's show, Mornings with Carmen, here on Faith Radio.
Hey, I'm Paul filling in for Carmen here on Faith Radio. And okay, I love Christmas music. We're in the Christmas music season. And one song that has come out in the last 15 years or so that I really love is called How Many Kings. The chorus goes like this. How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that has, that has torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. As we're celebrating this month, Jesus' first coming as a baby in a manger, we might uh, call that a humble beginning, right? But there's, there's, is there more to this? And if there is, is that important to us? Not just for our salvation, but for us as Christ followers? Is there something that, because of this message, the world needs from us? I hope to answer that question is, uh, well, Dennis Edwards. He is a, uh, he's a professor and dean down at North Park Seminary in Chicago. Not only that, uh, he is also, well, he's, he's a husband, he's a father, and to his grandkids, Big Daddy? Big That's Daddy, right. where'd that come from, Dennis? Uh, too long a story. But <laughs> it, goes, it goes with the Southern tradition of Big Mama, so I figured uh, I could be Big Daddy. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Dennis, thank you again. You're the author of a new book called Humility Illuminated, The Biblical Path Back to Christian Character. And as we discuss this and as we we look at Christ, here we are again, the Christmas season, when I reflect upon this aspect of his character, his humility, I think we need to start kind of fundamental. And you would think we don't need to start at a definition of humility, but I think we do. Could you give us your idea, your definition of humility? Sure. I, I, I say this not as, a, say, an ethicist or somebody who works in those areas, but <clears throat> excuse me, as a New Testament scholar and pastor, I've been defining humility as a posture of submission to God that then works itself out in deliberate um, acts of peacemaking and reconciliation. So it fundamentally starts with God and then moves out to um, show care for my neighbor. Mm. So as we look with that definition in mind, and let's look at Jesus, and let's look at him, him and his humility, and often we say, okay, he started from this humble birth in a stable, oh, that's humility, but the humility comes before that and out of so much more, doesn't it? Kind of explain that for us. Yeah, I think so. You 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 said well, I mean, what, what we celebrated Advent and Christmas, but then um, that's sort of wrapped up in a tight little package, if you will, in Philippians chapter two, what my favorites. Yeah, we think it's a hymn, an old Christian hymn, at least it it appears so to many scholars, where we see Christ um, not grasping on to the privileges of being deity, um, but instead laying aside those privileges and taking on the form of a slave. It says being obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So the whole movement that we see from from glory to earth, if you will, um, is an act of humility. It says in the text, he humbled himself, he emptied himself, and t- and took on uh, this humanity. So that's that's sort of the ultimate example of humility. And it does seem to come, again, before his actual incarnation, before his birth. Th- there's a disposition about his heart. Yes, that's actually a good way to say it, because the the way the hymn starts out is that 
who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to or exploited for personal gain. So this decision, if you will, was made sometime in the past, right? That before um, the birth in Bethlehem, we see a deliberate move on the son's part to take on this this role of of the servant. Yeah, you got to think uh, if if we were if he saw us before the foundations of the world and and called us then, and he knew he had to know the fall was going to happen. He had to know man was going to get involved in sin, and it was already part of his heart even then. Hmm. Yeah, that that's wonderful to marvel. Um, you know, I, I I'm not a philosopher per se, <laughs> but I do find myself marveling at the um the love of god that was so deliberate in in um rescuing humanity you know and to think that god strategized this is is overwhelming at times mm-hmm. and then he came to earth and he lived and you brought out the issue of obedience oh by the way we're talking with again dennis edwards a professor down at north park seminary in chicago author of Humility illuminated. Again, getting back to, okay, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, became a human, a servant, as the hymn talks about, made in human likeness. And then he humbled himself and was obedient. Let's talk about his obedience a bit. What strikes you about that? Yes, I mean, that's part of that definition of humility I said earlier. It starts with submission to God. So we see it in Jesus, obedient. He says in the Gospels, we see him say that it's his task or his job, if you will, to do the will of the Father. And that obedience is is what characterized the life of Jesus, that he moved and and served and loved and cared for others as an act of obedience to the Father. And that's that's an example for us, but it's also, you know, a blessing for us in that 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 obedience led to our life, to our rescue, to our redemption. Okay. And then there's another phrase you used or a word that, okay, we, there's a lot of words you use in this book that I think we really need to kind of get back to using, like vainglory. That, that's, <laughs> that's an old term that people don't think of, that, you know, that inordinate pride in oneself or one's achievements, or solidarity is another one you use that I just, it, it just, okay, to walk in lockstep, having that commitment to somebody else, which, mm. okay, these are aspects of that obedience on his part, and that, and the heart he had of humility, and you used another word, episodic. His yeah. obedience was not episodic. Talk right. about that. Yes. So when you see Jesus, and oh, one passage that comes to mind is in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus extends this invitation to all who are weary and heavy, heavy burdened, uh, burdened down by so much that he extends the invitation for them to take on his burden. He says, my burden's easy, my, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And in so, in that invitation, he says, you know, because I'm gentle and humble of heart, there's this sense that that's not just at that moment, but that's a characteristic that is pervasive. So it's not like I'm humble at this moment, but this is the way I am. This is my being. So humility is not meant to be something you turn on and turn off, or I'll be humble now because those people deserve my humility and those people over there don't. It's it's a way of being that's mm-hmm. like the way Jesus described himself. Yeah, there's another word you use there, embodiment. Yes, yes. And that's been, that was hard for me. I was trying to think about a way to to, to describe it. And, and um, 
and embodying, I, yeah, that's what came to me. It's the sense that it's pervasive. It's my whole way of being. It includes this kind of um, kind of character, this kind of of care, this submission to God and care for my neighbor. Yes, love is in that, of course, but it's it's perhaps easy to say that I love somebody and I can maybe do a, a task here and there and you say, oh, that's a loving thing to do. But humility, if it's pervasive, says my care is not hypocritical. I'm not doing this thing just to curry favor with someone, but it's consistent with uh, who I am. Yeah, it is it is it's very being it's part of who he is you're right there's a there's another verse uh in the gospel of gospel of John right before you know he's getting ready for the uh, upper room um the meal beforehand and in chapter 13 verse 3 there's a there's a verse that jumps out at me that says Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God and it's like okay first off he wasn't he was humble, but he didn't. He wasn't self-deprecating, or at least falsely so, or even just putting himself down. He wasn't. Oh, I'm just not a really good guy, or anything. He, he was secure in who he was as the second person of the Trinity, and yet in that, he, that that didn't. That was fuel for him to be humble and to serve. I, I appreciate that um, language of being secure in who he was. That's that's something I try to describe in the book. We we sometimes have a false concept of humility as as you suggest there, as being so self-deprecating that we almost present ourselves as being worthless or insignificant in some way. <clears throat> That's not the model we see from Jesus, and it's not a healthy one. Um, you know, the word humility kind of, uh, just like humiliation, although they're different things, they both derive from hummus, uh, a Latin word for earth or ground. I think humility is being grounded. It's a secure um, sense of who, who you are uh, in God. And then we can then show that care for our neighbors and not fear being um, uh, put put down because we can stand on our own in in our faith in, in God. I see that in the way Jesus operated. I see it in some other people in the scriptures that I talk about in the book. But I think you're you hit on something there. It's not a it's not an inordinately low view of ourselves. It's a secure view of ourselves. Mm. Well, again, we're talking with uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards, again, from North Park Seminary in Chicago about his book, Humility Illuminated. Actually, we're just, we've been talking about Jesus. The Basically, talk about humility, because that's something we're thinking about at this Christmas season. And maybe, hopefully right now, I'm hoping you're saying to yourself, wow, Jesus, you're just, you're just compelled to worship. But now mm. we got to ask the question, what does that mean for us as his followers? We'll talk about that in just a few moments here on Faith Radio. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at MyFaithRadio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at MyFaithRadio.com. The way up is down. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I'm Paul. Thanks for listening. I'm uh, filling in for Carmen today here on Faith Radio. And that phrase... 
pretty popular in some success circles, and it's often interpreted as, okay, you want to be successful. If you want to get that high position, you got to be willing to start and serve others first. Okay, there's an element of truth to that, but it's also kind of deceptive, as we were talking before about humility, as we see it in Jesus and what it means for our lives. Again, we're talking with Dennis Edwards about, around his book, Humility Illuminated, and Dennis, as Christ followers, when you see the, the picture of Jesus' humility, what do you think that really means for us? Yes, I, I think there, there's a couple of things. One is, for a Christian, one would hope that it's, it's motivational to say, I become more Christ-like. I mean, that would be a good thing I would hope that we'd want to pursue. And so that's one. It's, it's simply part of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus something I, I would hope that the Spirit is prompting all of us to do. But the second thing is that it helps those who are looking at the Christian community or even in individual Christians to get a better picture of what the faith is about. We're in a pretty polarized environment. Mm-hmm. We're in a confusing environment. And there's times when it's unclear what, what really marks Christians in this world, other than maybe you know some strident language that we might use from time to time. I think really what marks us is is an identity that is so Christ-like that, that people can't help but to take notice. And part of that identity includes humility. In fact, in the ancient world, it was a, a, a Christian identity marker because mm-hmm. it was so unlike the way of, the, of that Roman empire. So for Christians to be humble really stood out um, to the rest of society. It really did. You know, another way I think we can illustrate this humility, and I want you to share the story of your dad. <laughs> what yeah. was his name? Um, what's my dad's name? Yeah. Said? His name was Thomas, Thomas Edwards. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, yeah, he took us to church when we were kids. And, um, and, and he became pretty active in the church, but not in the typical way. He wasn't a public speaker. He wasn't, you know, big philanthropist, everybody known for giving huge amounts of money. He was um, somebody always willing to serve. So he he would be there early. He would be there. Um, well, hauling you guys along. Yeah, hauling us kids <laughs> along. And in fact, I jokingly say early. He was really on time, which it seemed early because so many people would come late. Uh, so much so that he, he got a key, even though he wasn't a deacon. And that church, only deacons could have keys. But he was given a key so we could get in and he would help set things up. He would take people home who had come by by public transportation. He... um he voluntarily would put himself in places where he could serve and be a good neighbor to those around. Um, and that that stood out to me. I mean, it still does. I still picture that posture of, of service. And yes, there are gifts of service in the life of the church, but there are also ways that all of us who might not have a particular gift of service are called upon, called upon to be to be neighborly. And I think that comes out of a posture of humility where I don't have to be served. This is Jesus, right? He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So yeah, my dad was a good example of humility for me. The way you've written this book, I mean, you you bring about the gospel stuff in the first couple of chapters. It's it's kind of Pauline, let me put it that way, because, you know, you read a Pauline epistle, the first few chapters is, okay, here's the gospel, here's the facet I want you to see. Now, here's how it applies, is the rest of the book, or at least much of the rest of the book, and this feels that way. There's one deeper aspect I want to ask you, because the world needs us as Christ followers to show that humility, don't, doesn't it? 
I want you to talk yes. about that. Yes, I agree with that. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, we yes, there's a polarization in our society and probably throughout the world in many places. And there's some way that Christians can stand for, well, I shouldn't even say stand for, because even using that language starts to sound uh, political for some people. And certainly I'm not opposed to uh, political views. Of, of, but my point is, if we could be the kind of people who listen well, who are curious, who are um, caring, these are the kinds of things that come out of a posture of humility, then I think the world would would take notice and would say, ah, these are the kinds of people who really have been with Jesus and understand what Jesus is like. So <clears throat> what I think is a posture of humility means an invitation. It's an invitation for others to take notice of what God looks like in this world. So yeah, I advocate pretty strongly that humility would be <clears throat> a recognizable uh, uh, difference <laughs> from the rest of society. So in other words, an embodiment, like Christ embodied? That's right. It's just the way Christ embodied uh, humility, we would as well. And I see that as pervasive, the way it would show up in, in uh, and I try to illustrate this in the book, in my casual interactions with people, but also in the way we shape our communities, the way churches are shaped, the way our our uh, Christian witness appears in variety of settings. So I do try to give practical examples, as you acknowledge there. I, I still try to do the, the biblical exegesis so you can see how these texts are are celebrating or describing humility and then try to give some examples of what that looks like in practice. I've, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, about 30 years altogether, and I have seen some things along the way, some good, some not so good. And I try to learn from those experiences and share them. So yeah, I want it to be embodied and want it to be practical. Mm. Well, again, Dennis, thanks for joining us. Dennis, the author of Humility Illuminated, The Biblical Path Back to Christian Character, one of the characteristics that, again, the world needs. And we're the ones to show it because we're Jesus's disciples. Hey, Dennis, thank you. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Uh, real quickly, when people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm I'm on the socials at uh, Rev Dr. Dre R E V D R D R E, <laughs> and that's also my website RevDrDre.com. Okay, you got to explain that real quickly the Dre thing because it's oh my initials my initials are D R E yeah. and um, so they spell out Dre and that that's as far as we need to say about Dr. Dre. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Dr. Dre. Well, uh, Dennis, again, thank you for joining us here on Faith Radio. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, again, this is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Paul. It's been fun filling in. I get to do that through uh, tomorrow. Carmen will be back in on Monday. Okay, I, I have to talk about this because I it just I had to laugh. Um, okay, in Colorado, uh, the criminal duo of Michael Green and Byron Bolden were sentenced, formally sentenced for retail theft after stealing uh, items from the Parker, Colorado coal store. The department store dubbed these two the KitchenAid Mixer Crew as they were associated with stealing high-end KitchenAid appliances as well as other brand name things as well. Now, they were trying to get their sentence reduced because essentially their argument was, well, the stuff we stole was on sale. Therefore, if you look at the value of the items you're accusing us of stealing, it's it only qualifies for a class six felony instead of where they're at. <laughs> well, 
The judge said, um, no. And, uh, yeah, Cole's cash would not have helped out in this situation for them either, either so they're getting the uh, full sentence. Anyway, thank you again for listening to uh, Faith Radio. And here we are in the Christmas season, and I've been talking to a lot of people who have been saying this is one of the hardest Christmas seasons they've had in a while. Maybe you're there, too, and you're needing that extra dose of hope. Well, text that word, the word HOPE, to 877-933-2484. We want to send text every few days to encourage you and, and point you to the hope we have in Jesus. And yes, we will be praying for you, too. So again, text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. Hour number two of Mornings with Carmen for this Thursday is on the way. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.